Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13. As we begin this morning again, a a thank you uh, for everyone who made the sabbatical possible. A special thank you for the men who filled the pulpit and staff who filled all of the holes in my absence. uh, If you're wondering how I'm doing, I'm probably 85%, maybe 90%. Can hear a little bit in my voice still. I have uh, 30 more days of, of treatments, and uh, we'll find out after that what my new normal might be. Um, I think, I think, and I'm praying that as I exercise my voice, it'll get stronger. Um, but uh, I started my week back in ministry by doing a wedding yesterday, so this is some of the aftermath of, of that speaking, and, and it is what it is. Um, the sabbatical was necessary and needed, um, if nothing else, for my, my physical health. I was uh, coming to find out a lot sicker than I thought he was. Um, maybe you knew that, but maybe I just didn't want to admit that. It was good for my soul, too. I did a lot of studying and a lot of reading and, and just reflecting on life and ministry. In 22 and a half years at First Baptist, and I'm ready for the last chapter, and the last chapter is what? I'm going to be here till you tell me I can't be here. And in the end of the day, it might be sooner than all of us think. What a crazy world. I was able to read a little bit more of the, just the wackos out there, not, not in the world, but even in the church today. How did we get to where we are today? So, in the midst of all of that, we will begin in earnest in September and probably through the spring, doing an expositional verse-by-verse study in the book of Galatians. It's going to be more than an exposition in Galatians. We will look at the text, and we will take some time to do some topical sermons in the context of that expositional study on the key truths of the gospel. What have we lost in terms of the gospel today, and what are the ramifications for that? And the next month will be my introduction, looking at a lot of crazy things and, and where the world and evangelicalism today, and um, we'll have much to say about the gospel, and particularly you know, from, from the words of Paul in the book of Galatians. Now, whenever you endeavor and embark on a study like this, there is an inherent danger. One of those dangers, <clears throat> my apologies, I do cough still not from time to time, not nearly as much. One of the dangers is a study in the true gospel and in Galatians where there was someone in the church trying to change the gospel is that some of you will begin to question or doubt your salvation. That is not the intent of our study in the book of Galatians and the gospel. Our intent is to, to equip you with a right biblical thinking so that you can clearly articulate how you know you are a child of God. And I'm here to tell you, you can know that you are a child of God. This has nothing to do with you and your feelings. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for you on the cross of Calvary. And we're going to focus on that earnestly in the next number of months. The other inherent danger is the risk of exposing those who preach another or a different gospel. Incurring their wrath for speaking such things. 
But in the end of the day, the Scripture is very clear that the road is narrow. And Christ Himself in the Sermon on the Mount says, enter by the gate, the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those are serious words, causing serious concern, not just for the world at large, but the purity of God's people. And we learn from the Scripture that the wheat and the tares will always be gathered together in the assembly. There's nothing we can do about that save this. Preach the gospel according to Jesus Christ unashamedly and unapologetically that you might know that you have eternal life and that life is in the Son. So as we embark on this study, I pray that it would be both challenging and encouraging to you. In your Bibles in John chapter 13, we come to this, what is called sometimes the upper room discourse. Jesus is giving final instructions to His disciples, for the hour is at hand. He is going to offer Himself as a sacrifice for sin, and He's preparing these disciples who have followed Him throughout His earthly ministry for the things that would come next. And they didn't truly grasp everything that He was saying, but what He said and is saying to them is deeply profound. We read in verse 1 of John chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do now not understand. But afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, for he is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you. There are serious ramifications for that. These are the men who were closest to Jesus. These are the men who knew Him in the deepest way possible. These are the men who heard Him teach and saw Him perform miracles. And not every one of them was clean. How does that how does that happen? What went wrong? And as we explore that over the course of the coming months, I pray that it will become more and more clear. 
So being away for such a long time, I have to go back. We started in these Communion Sundays a study of this upper room discourse with this text in John 13. And each celebration of the Lord's Supper, we will come back to this upper room discourse as we move through this text and these passages, tying it together with our study. But as we look at what is taking place, there is room for all of us to stop and give pause, particularly to the notion not every one of you is clean. May God give us clarity. May He give us insight. May He give us peace, a peace that passes understanding that we might know that we have eternal life, and that life is in His Son. Bless the text. Bless my words, Father. Use it for Your glory. Speak to our hearts. May it be a pointed reminder as we sit at the table, the things that matter most. Glorify Yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look in the text and we read that final verse that I read, that the one who has bathed is not to need to wash except for his feet, verse 10, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, it makes a differentiation between two types of people, those who know and those who don't. There are only two types of people in this world. There are those who know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and are secure for eternity, and there are those who don't. But the danger in all of this and the critical notion in all of this is that some of those who are in danger don't know they're in danger because the gospel has been in many ways so watered down that they fail to understand its implications from beginning to end. The gospel is not just a message that saves you. The gospel is the message that gets you all the way home, and we're not home yet. That's one of the reasons for the table, to be reminded and to remember. As we look at this text, one of the things that stands out, at least for me, is the notion of who can be trusted We will find out shortly after this passage of Scripture that the very people who who celebrated and championed and, and glorified Jesus as He came into Jerusalem will be the very ones that will chant, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him in just a few short days. Who can be trusted? You look at the text, and you see Judas Iscariot. And as you look at Judas Iscariot, you know that he had every opportunity and every privilege that one could have as an inside track to the truth, and yet he wasn't clean. Who can be trusted? In John chapter 13, verse 21, we read, and after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, no doubt. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. That's a significant description. They're all looking around, assuming that everybody in the room was okay. And because of that assumption, they're not sure of the one person that Jesus is singling out, saying they're not okay. And they're looking around, and they're asking themselves questions, and they're searching their hearts. That's not a bad thing. 
That is a good and a necessary thing. That's why we examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But they were beginning to learn that they can't trust themselves. They are not the ones who are the final arbiter of their salvation. They're not the determining factor of whether or not they come to faith in Christ or or don't come into faith in, in Christ. Who can be trusted? And they're beginning to question themselves. I believe that's a a good place to be, particularly for the disciples whose whole world would unravel in the few brief chapters that follow the crucifixion of our Savior. Look at verse 36 of this same text. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me after." And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I am doing everything that I can. I will do everything possible. I will even lay down my life for you if I can follow you. Do you notice that Peter's attention and this glorious salvation is not on the Savior. It's about him. What can I do? Here's what I will do. And I promise that that I'll do this. You find an interesting kind of twist and a flip of the gospel in Peter's statements. And here's how Jesus responds, verse 38. Common language. You're going to lay down your life for me? Is, Is that how this works, Peter? You think you're the one that is going to make this a reality? You think you're the one that is the determining factor of faith and whether or not you're clean, you're going to lay down your life for me? Can can you hear the tone of his voice? Peter, you've got this backwards. This has nothing to do with you. You can't be trusted. Now, what do we gain from that text? We gain from that text some really, really important realities. We see it in Peter. Good intentions are just that, good intentions. And when it comes to the eternal matters of the heart and whether or not you and I are clean, righteous in Jesus Christ, all of the good intentions in the world amount to nothing. We cut slack in people's lives today. Well, they they mean well, but they're not doing well. Why Why don't we tell them? Well, they're almost there. There is no such thing. What is the reality of all of the good intentions of Peter? Peter, you're going to die for me? Do you understand what you're saying, Peter? Before the night is over, you will deny me three times. Sobering. Sobering. Peter, this has nothing to do with you. I chose you. I taught you. I groomed you to be an apostle, a a spokesperson for me when when I leave this earth. You don't seem to grasp the implications of that. No, he didn't. None of them did. But they would soon, after all that transpires to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It starts in the very beginning when Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. I don't need you to wash my feet. I don't want you to because that's the task of a menial servant. Well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, none of you is clean. Okay, then wash everything, Peter said. Peter has this notion that somehow 
there's something that he needed to do to assure that he was clean. Pay close attention to this. There is nothing, nothing, nothing of salvation that can be credited to your good intentions or your good works. Nothing, 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 nothing. Even if Jesus had washed the whole body of Judas, he wasn't clean. There's nothing to… We have this notion of salvation that somehow we are the determinant. We choose Christ. Oh, after all these years of life and ministry and looking in the mirror to see how sinful I am, I am so thankful to tell you that He chose me. Because there was nothing, 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 nothing that I did to make myself clean. It was solely the work of Jesus Christ. I know that's a troubling doctrine for some of you, and it's been a troubling doctrine from the beginning of the ages. And even in the Reformation, Martin Luther commenting on the book of Galatians and those who believe that Jesus does His part and will do our part and synchronize together, we'll all get there eventually, says, no, it is not about your part. There's nothing that you bring to the table. Will you lay down your life for Jesus? No, it's the opposite of all of that. And Martin Luther, and commenting on those who had added to the gospel and, and, and started to believe that good works somehow are part of that gospel, said a little something is not nothing. It's nothing. No matter what you try and add, nothing can be added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saved you. That's glorious. Not Nothing. And yet, even today, we have a tendency to add a little something, just a little something. We don't want to change the gospel. We'll add a little something. A little something is nothing, nothing, nothing. So, in spite of all of those good intentions, nothing is nothing. And we're dead in our trespasses and sin and only made alive through Jesus Christ in Him alone. As you look again at John chapter 13. You look at verse 31. And in the midst of this upper room discourse, as Judas is left, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will always seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. It seems to be a confusing passage. Well, if I am clean from nothing, 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 and now you're saying I must love, love, love if I'm going to be one of your disciples, doesn't that mean that I've got to do something? That's not what he's saying in this text. 
He is simply saying, when I have done all of the work, this is how it shows up in your life. This is how it's reflected in your life. This is what's expected after that glorious transformation takes place. Is love important? Absolutely. It is one of the telltale marks of someone who is truly born from above. And you know how that passage of Scripture has unraveled in the course of my lifetime and in the last 20 years of ministry, where love has become the essence of the gospel and the only part of the gospel that matters. You just have to love people to Jesus. But he's just told us it doesn't work that way. You just have to be nice and, and, and kind to people, and they'll come to the Savior. It just doesn't work that way. They're dead in trespasses and sin. As we look at this text and we understand what he's saying, it seems like this has devolved in evangelicalism today, this notion of love. They were to look beyond all kind of wickedness and evil, wink at it, treat people as if they're one of us, and that will make everything okay. It doesn't make anything okay. It leads them down the path of destruction and believing that they're okay when they're not okay. The gospel is an offense to those who do not believe. And whom is it that doesn't believe? Everyone who Jesus hasn't rescued yet. It's an offense. You don't love people to the gospel. You tell them the truth of the gospel, and God transforms their life, teaches them how to love one another. It is not a component of the gospel that comes after the gospel and the salvation that comes in Christ alone. And in evangelicalism today, it has morphed into this notion of an 11th commandment, just love. The rest of the 10 don't matter anymore. God, God forbid. It, it, does, it does matter. It's the line of delineation between those who are clean and, and those aren't. Vody Balkum, commenting on this 11th commandment, says, it is defined in this way, thou shalt be nice. And that's more important than the other Ten Commandments. That's our culture today. That's evangelicalism today. Thou shalt be nice. What role does that play in salvation? Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, Paul says, If I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, this necessity of preaching the gospel is laid upon me. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. I feel that way oftentimes. Paul Washer commenting on this niceness and this other gospel of loving people to Jesus, says there's something worse than holding our silence when the loss of this world run headlong into hell. The crime of preaching to a different gospel than the one passed down to the saints. He says, woe to those if we do not preach the gospel, but even greater woe if we preach the gospel incorrectly. 
We've got to get the gospel right. And that was the whole problem in the provinces of Galatia. They were changing the gospel, which meant that they were changing the nature of the convert. And in changing the nature of the gospel and watering down its content for those who were unbelievers, they were giving a false illusion to those who were not clean that they are clean. Woe, woe, woe unto us. Martin Luther, commenting again on Galatians, says, because the church is so frail and tender and so easily overthrown, one must be on guard against these fanatics, those who want to alter and add to the gospel. For when they have heard two sermons or have read a couple of pages of the sacred scriptures, they suddenly make themselves masters of all pupils and teachers, contrary to the authority of men. I listened to John Piper. He can't save you. I like R.C. Sproul. He can't save you. Well, I heard in a video, I heard on a cassette, some of you don't know what those are, I heard here and there and everywhere, I don't care. What is the gospel? We've got to get the gospel right. Martin Luther warns of that. In fact, even many who think they understand the doctrine of faith have been tested by temptation and led astray, even those who know sometimes. Feel this press to not offend anybody and still offer the gospel. It is impossible. Because until you know how broken you are, you will never understand how glorious is the God who created everything. And the more you understand your brokenness, the more, the more magnificent the gospel becomes the more magnificent the person work of Jesus Christ becomes. He chased me down and found me. He came after me with an eternal passion. He rescued me through the blood of His Son. He stamped and sealed me with the ministry of His Holy Spirit, and I am saved and clean only because of Jesus Christ. I have done nothing, 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 nothing that He would even look upon me with anything but contempt, because I was a sinful man, broken beyond repair. But Jesus did something miraculous in my life. Is that your story this morning? The danger is to add and to take it away and to water it down. But let me ask you this question. To water down that gospel or to add to it, how indifferent do you have to be toward the unsaved? How indifferent to turn a blind eye to these vessels fit for destruction? How indifferent do you have to be to look beyond Christ, the only means of salvation? Preach a different gospel knowingly because you don't want to offend anybody. How indifferent do you have to be that it doesn't change their eternal condition 
and they're destined for hell outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How indifferent do you really have to be to buy into this 11th commandment and not tell people the truth? I'll also say they don't want to hear the truth. And you're going to be the bad guy in all of this if you hold them accountable to the truth. But how indifferent to your acquaintances, co-workers, friends, and family, someone you love, how indifferent you have to be to know the truth and not tell them the truth, no matter how painful that might be. Woe is me, Paul said, if I preach not the gospel. Woe is me. Archie Sproul commenting on the book of Galatians says, a profession of faith has never saved anyone. A person who is saved is called to make a profession of faith. Just because you make a profession of faith doesn't mean that you possess the faith that you need to be justified. In a very pointed, haunting way, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. May we never find ourselves culpable in that situation. May we always rest in the truth of the gospel. Even if it offends. Because there's no no way outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? In its simplest form, Christ died for you according to the Scripture. He was buried and raised again the third day according to the Scripture. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, and through that gospel, and through justification by faith alone. For the Son of Man, Mark tells us, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Paul, in a very descriptive fashion about our good intentions, says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see Peter's name there anywhere? You see your name anywhere in that text? Salvation is in Christ alone. When you were running headlong away from Him, when your heart was hardened against Him through a work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and through the preaching of the Word and a pricked conscience that comes from God through Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit, He rescued you from your sin. What a glorious gospel that is. Nothing, nothing, nothing that I did to make that a reality. The truth of the matter is, it is this gospel, and we will look at this and, and unpeel the layers of this. I don't have time this morning. This gospel defines us. 
When someone says, how do you know? I say, because of Jesus Christ, period, and end of sentence. When someone says, how do you know? I say, because of Jesus Christ. Well, there must be something more. There is nothing more. Nothing, nothing, nothing because of Jesus Christ. The gospel defines us. The gospel compels us. And once the gospel has rescued our soul and lives, it compels us to live differently. It compels us to act differently. And it compels us to to speak differently. And we do that under the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not without consequence. It doesn't just get you out of hell. It changes you from the inside out, conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. And it compels us to obedience. If you love me, and only those who know Him, love Him, He says, you'll keep my commandments. The gospel compels us to do that. The gospel binds us together. How fitting that I am back after a hiatus to sit down at this table with you because this is what we have in common right here. This is what binds us together in spite of all of our crazy differences. I am defined by my relationship with Jesus Christ and stamped with the seal of the Holy Spirit. And if you are, we come to this table and remind ourselves we've done nothing, nothing, nothing. Let's celebrate the Savior. This is what the table's for. It reminds us of those things. The gospel not only defines us, it compels us and it binds us together. The gospel sustains us. Sometimes when we're waiting, I know a little bit about that. It's the gospel that sustains us and reminds us that it doesn't matter what's going to happen, everything's going to be okay. Because who God saves, He keeps. He saves to the uttermost. And no one shall pluck you out of my Father's hand. What a glorious, glorious thought that is. You're mine. You're mine. This gospel sustains us in the most difficult times of life and the most difficult periods of history. And then, of course, the gospel completes us. We're not done yet. You're not a finished work. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine if this is as good as it gets? God can't do anything more than what He's done right here, and we've got to spend eternity together? He is not done yet. He's still working and our salvation becomes complete when we see Him, and we become like Him, for we'll finally see Him as He is. There is a Latin phrase Martin Luther used often in the Reformation to describe this, this process of sanctification and this completion of salvation that isn't completed until we see Him and become like Him. Simul justus peccator. At the same time, righteous and sinner. That's the gospel. We are righteous because of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make us perfect. We are righteous because of Jesus Christ, but we still fight this sin that is in our flesh. We are righteous because of Jesus Christ, but we're not home yet. But the gospel completes us. And there is coming a time when He makes all things new. If you've been through anything, your longing for that newness becomes greater and greater and greater, and you realize nothing in this world can satisfy. That's what God intended. That's what God intended. So as we grow in the grace and He completes us, 
We are righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but you are not perfect, and I am not perfect. And in our imperfections, we need to learn to get along with each other. And in the midst of our imperfections, we must fight against the notion to change the gospel. And what is that gospel? Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. No one. Salvation is in Christ alone. Salvation is by faith alone. You've done nothing nothing loving. Salvation is through grace alone. You weren't a good person, and God decided, well, they're pretty good. Maybe I'll save them. No, it's an unmerited kind of favor. You are rotten to the core, and He saved you anyhow. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is by grace alone, and it's for the glory of God alone. So, Pastor Jim, how do I know then that I'm saved? Through Scripture alone. And that's why we will turn our attention to the book of Galatians and study both historically, theologically, and doctrinally the core ingredients of the gospel. So that through Scripture you might know that you have eternal life and that life is in His Son. Reminded every single day you've done nothing, 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 nothing. And what do we do? To prevent being drawn into this trap, we get into the book. We listen to the words of God through the Spirit. We preach a sound gospel. And then we come here. When you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you are acknowledging that you've done nothing, 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 nothing. It's all because of Him. It's the gospel, the only gospel, the true gospel. And again, R.C., as he winds out his commentary on the book of Galatians, says something that is absolutely contrary to the world today and even evangelicalism at large. He states that if the church triumphant is ever going to be a church triumphant, it has to first be the church militant. We are an army. We are in warfare we are fighting the powers and the principalities and spiritual weakness in, in high places, and we've got to get the gospel right. This is the only hope. But down the path where you're called a legalist, a hater, a bigot, unfair, unwelcoming, unkind, at the end of the day, I have to put my head on the pillow and ask if I've been true to the gospel. I can't tell you that it doesn't affect me. I'm just like you. I want people to like me. My pulpit ministry, my teaching ministry. I don't set out in the morning to offend anybody. But if I truly, truly believe that Jesus is the only way, 
how indifferent must I be to you and your eternal state not to say, that's not how this works. How indifferent. I'm as passionate as the gospel 42 years in the ministry than I was when I first started. And maybe it's because I've grown in grace and the knowledge. There's nothing, nothing, nothing outside of what Christ has done for us. And that's what we need to remember this morning. You can flip there. Perhaps you know it by heart. Paul speaks of this celebration of the Lord's Supper in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup was the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Shortly after that, Paul says, So before you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, let a man examine himself. Have you got the gospel right? Have you bought into this notion that somehow God cooperated with your spirit or somehow you cooperated with His and that's how you got here? You've done nothing, nothing, nothing. It is this gospel depicted in the elements that defines us and compels us and binds us together and sustains us, and it is this gospel that will complete us. And someday, all this stuff that I'm dealing with, and someday all of the realities of this world, and someday even my greatest enemy, myself, will be totally transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Aren't you longing for that day? It's kind of like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this crazy world of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of the table. Father, we are thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of our Savior that has rescued us from our sin, that binds us together, prepares us for a better day, and compels us to live soberly and righteous in this present age as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ. May we be faithful to that gospel as we expound upon it and reflect on the book of Galatians moving forward. We you ever be reminded that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that we have done. May it teach us to praise our Savior all the day long. Help us to see your glory and your holiness and your goodness to us through Jesus Christ, I pray. Bless now as we take this benevolence offering. Use it for your glory, for the encouragement of your people, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. 
Amen.